Good evening. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation to come and speak on this difficult subject. And we, you know, we see even from this interview with uh, Stephen Fry by Gay Byrne on Irish National TV that you know that behind the question of suffering lies uh, so much, so much emotion, and so much. Um, it's, uh, it's one of the biggest barriers that people have to faith, and it lies uh, in it lies some of the most difficult questions that we ourselves as Christians face. And that's partly why I, I wanted to spend some time writing on it. Why is there so much suffering in the world? Why are Islamic State committing terrible acts of violence? Why is Ebola virus killing thousands and hundreds of thousands? Why have innocent children been abused by celebrities? Why is there homelessness, crime, sex trafficking, Boko Haram, other civil wars, Cyclone Pam and the Nepalese earthquake, to name a few? And we've been again reminded of the, the, the depth of this question through this interview that we see here, that we've just seen. How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world so full of injustice and pain? The question of suffering is not just an intellectual question not even for Stephen Fry. I wonder what has been your experience. Perhaps it's the death of a loved one. Perhaps it's a struggle with family, a breakdown in a relationship. Perhaps it's illness. Maybe it's stress or the pressure of work. Maybe it's eating. Our struggle in our family has been with ill health. My husband, Conrad, um, at the age of 11, fell and, and banged his head on the floor. And what happened after that has never been fully understood by neurologists. And we have years and years of normal uh, life and full health, but that are interspersed by periods of, of illness where he's um, at times just bedridden, unable to work, and sometimes unable to speak as well. And in 13 years of married life, this has happened uh, kind of five or six times. And I should say that we are well at the moment, although we've just come out of a, another period of him being ill. And our most recent neurologist said to us, I'm sorry, there is nothing we can do for you. We live in an age where we're told that science and medicine and technology can answer every question. What do you do when medicine has nothing to say, when you have something that doesn't have a name? And for many, these words, there's nothing we can do for you, they mark the beginning of the end of life. For us, it didn't threaten life itself, but its quality. But many of you know here that can wreak havoc enough itself. 
And as we look at suffering together this evening, I am not here for one minute to say that we have all of the answers. How could I possibly do that in terms of my own life and in terms of the myriad things that we we come up against as people? But not having all of the answers does not mean there are no answers at all. Just because we can't say everything doesn't mean we can't say anything on this subject. There are still some things that we can say to help us make more sense of our messed up world. And if you have ever asked why, it raises an interesting thought. To whom are you addressing the question? You see, if God does not exist, then there's no one to ask. The late Christopher Hitchens, um, best-selling author and atheist, um, was interviewed in 2011 when he was diagnosed with terminal cancer of the esophagus and he was asked whether despite his atheism he'd been tempted to ask the question, why me? And he responded like this, he said, you can't avoid the question however stoic you are, you can only bat it away as a silly one. Millions of people die every day, everyone's got to go sometime. Now this response is an incredibly bleak one and yet it is entirely consistent with uh, Christopher Hitchens' atheism. If God does not exist, there is no point asking why because there's no one to ask. This is just the way the world is. Accidents happen, DNA messes up. And the solution is live as best you can because this is the only life that you get. But the problem with that is what do I do about the feeling of anger that rises up in me when I watch the news, when I hear about a school full of girls that are still missing one year after they were abducted, when we hear about loved ones who've been mistreated. I don't know about you, but I want justice. Well, where does that come from? If this is just the way the world is, where does that sense of anger and injustice come from? If this is the only life that we get, then Jimmy Savile got away with it. If this is the only life we get, Hitler got away with it. And Stephen Fry's reaction is so interesting because his atheism says, this is just the way the world is. But this, it's like that's not enough, that's insufficient. There's a strong sense in him of injustice. Where does that come from? And as Gay Byrne said to Stephen Fry, that sure is the longest answer to that question that I've ever had in this entire series for a God he doesn't believe exists. The apologist Ravi Zacharias says when we object to suffering, we're invoking a moral law. In other words, when we see suffering or when we experience it, it creates an awareness that there's something wrong with the world. And it creates a longing for something better. In other words, right and wrong, good and evil are brought clearly into focus. 
Well, how do we explain right and wrong, good and evil? Where do they come from? Well, a popular view is that they come from within. There's an internal moral law that distinguishes good from evil. Do what's right for you. That's true for you. That's right for you, but not for me. But what if doing what's right for you brings harm to someone else? You see, it works fine when you're talking about where to buy your next pair of shoes or washing machine. But when you start to use that for moral decision-making, you run into problems. What if doing what's right for you brings harm to somebody else? You may remember 2011 when our streets descended into chaos. Some of our major cities, um, there was rioting and looting. Well, a, a looter was interviewed on Radio 4 as to why he was doing what he was doing. And he, he said that this was an opportunity not to be missed. He was perfectly justified in seizing the moment, every man for himself. And he was then asked, well, would he mind then if his own home was looted in the process? Well, this response was one of outrage. That would be utterly unacceptable. And this is a common reaction to an individualistic ethic. Do what's right for you. Because what's right for you is fine until it comes knocking on our own door. And then... And sometimes only then we start to invoke a higher moral standard that some things are absolutely wrong for more than one person and other things are right. The Christian perspective is that moral values do not come from within. They originate in someone bigger than us. They are not internal, they are external. Good is defined by who God is, a being who you can trust with your life, who does not lie, in whom there is no darkness, no deceit, no malice, a being who is the ultimate definition of good and who has somehow imprinted that, a shadow, a reflection of that goodness onto us the people that he's made. And therefore, good is fixed and unchanging, regardless of background or time point in history or the culture that you've been raised in. Evil is also real and is anything contrary to who God is. And just as God is personified, so is evil as Satan, personified as Satan, a personal being who has some degree of influence for now, not forever. And so an atheist might say that the problem of suffering rules out the existence of God because if God existed, he would do something about it. But a Christian would say, it is the very existence of God that helps us make most sense of that gut feeling that some things are absolutely wrong and other things are absolutely right. In other words, the existence of God enables us to call evil, evil. Another form of the question comes like this. If God is so loving, 
Why is there so much suffering? This is a different question. It doesn't ask whether God exists. It asks, what is he like? And as my colleague Michael Ramsen says, that many of the objections to God are on the basis that he's morally dubious. There's something wrong with God's moral character. Stephen Fry put it in terms of God being clearly a maniac, totally selfish, utterly monstrous. And it goes like this. Given the suffering in our world, if God exists, then he's either not all-powerful, he's some frail old man who would dearly love to help, but sadly can't. Or he's not good. He's actually malevolent, the one causing the suffering, kind of picking people out for punishment like some sort of divine sniper in the sky. Or perhaps worse than that. He has favorites. You have a good life. You're my favorite. You are not. You have a bad life. Or even worse than that, perhaps he's lazy. He has the capacity to help, but chooses not to, like some sort of delinquent superhero. A loving, all-powerful God would presumably create a loving world. So why didn't he? Well, some of you may have seen the movie, The Hunger Games, a series of movies. And in in this, the storyline is that that society has been suppressed by the leaders and dispersed into districts, and they control the food supply and the resources going in to all of these different districts. And two people from each district, um, on a yearly basis, are forced to participate in the Hunger Games um, and they end up being uh, placed in a man-made dome. And they're, they're oppressors. Uh, the, the leaders control the weather. They control whether it's day or night. They can make it instantly day if they want to and instantly night. They can control their movements throughout this dome by placing boundaries and almost like herding these people like cattle. They can place obstacles in their way to endanger their life or they can send help that would save their life. They are essentially in control of who survives and who doesn't. And the only way to stand any chance of surviving is to kill other people. And what is the worst thing about this society and these hunger games? It seemed to me as I was watching it that it's that choice has been removed. There's a sense of that freedom has been taken away on so many levels. And ultimately, the people rise up and rebel. They want freedom. You see, one of the greatest human dignities is when we have freedom to choose. And when that freedom is removed, a sense of injustice rises up in us. And as I think about this, I reflect that a world with the appearance of freedom or false freedom is not a better world than one in which there is genuine freedom. Those are inferior worlds where you have false freedom or no freedom. That is not a better world. We could even think about in terms of forced marriages that we hear about on the news all the time where young girls are move to other countries and force to marry someone that they don't want to. 
You know, the reason why this is so wrong is because I don't get to choose who to love. How does this help us answer the question, if God is so loving, then why is there so much suffering? God is love and has made a world with love right at the center, but real love is chosen. It has to be chosen. It can't be forced. And God didn't want puppets or robots. He wanted people with freedom so that they can love, so that love is possible. But free choice opens the possibility of wrong choice because you have to have an alternative to good. Otherwise, you're not free. And as we look at those early verses um, of, of the Bible, we see that God created a world good, but with freedom to choose wrong. And those earliest humans chose wrong. Now, however you interpret the, the, these you know, early verses and chapters of, of Genesis, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil on one level represents moral freedom because there you have an alternative to the good and the right. And so those earliest humans chose the wrong. They chose to ignore God and put themselves at the center and somehow in ways that we don't fully understand this, it has introduced a blueprint into the human race. We don't understand it, but we see it. There's so many levels out there, in here, in family life, in our children. And so you can make the point that much suffering, not all, but much suffering is caused by our wrong choices as a result of this kind of this blueprint this this blueprint that's in the human race perhaps you can remember times when you have caused suffering to someone else or perhaps when we've been on the receiving end of someone else's foolish choices to you the christian faith says we do this because we are disconnected from the god who made us we try to live without him. It's something that Christians call sin. And sin is such a loaded word. But you know, there's really only one with a capital S. And that is to say, I'm doing it my way, God. I do not need you. And the Christian faith, because of this, says that the problem of suffering is not just something out there in the world, but it's in here as well. There's a problem in every human heart, that tendency to say, I'm doing it my way. The Christian faith would say, there is suffering because there is something wrong with the world. Very often when we're suffering, we, we're tempted to think, is God punishing me? Am I being singled out for punishment in some way? And we would say, not necessarily. There is a general consequence of living in a world that is broken. 
and in which people make wrong choices. Another form of the question is that, does God care about my suffering? Does God care about my suffering? During our um, struggles with, with uh, ill health, I've, I've you know, noticed the different ways that people act towards somebody who is hurting. Um, some people um, were amazing and really helped us with uh, practically you know, providing meals that kept us afloat. One time, um, Conrad was ill uh, when I had a, we had a two-year-old and a seven-week-old. And, and that was a, a particularly intense time. And so people brought uh, meals that kept us um, afloat. Um, others, um, uh, others kind of said, I'm praying for you. And there were others that feel awkward. Have you ever been in that place where... That the fact that you're suffering is a, is a, it causes awkwardness. People don't know how to react around a hurting person. I'm sure I've done it myself as well. And that can add to the sense of isolation. And in those times, we feel most comfortable with people who are themselves suffering. Or that they know what it's like to go through this or something similar. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. I, I just felt more than anything the importance of that sense of a shared experience of suffering, feeling understood and not alone. How does this help us? You know, you might say, well, it's very convenient for God to set the world up a certain way, like you've just said, Sharon, and then stay so distant. You see, God doesn't have to experience the repercussions of this freedom that he's introduced into the world. It still doesn't change or help with the horrendous evils that I see and experience in my own life. What I want to know is, does God even care about what I am going through? And if he does care, why does it feel like he stays so distant why doesn't he make himself more obvious? Why doesn't he come and experience what it is like to live in this messed up world and get his hands dirty? Well, suddenly we are posing a question to a personal God. But did you know that most world religions don't speak of a personal God? In Islam, Allah is to be revered. He is transcendent. He is all-powerful. And, and Islam means submission. And the goal is to submit to the will of Allah, whatever happens. And therefore, personal questions are simply not a central part of what it means to be a Muslim. In Eastern religion, while they're highly complex and everything I say will be an oversimplification, but in, in some forms of, of pantheism, um, God is referred to more as it than he or she. And if you are asking a personal question like why, that means you're only part of the way on your journey to emerging with the great consciousness, better described as it, and, and that process involves letting go of individuality, letting go of personality, letting go of the sense of me, and merging into oblivion. 
Where then does our personal question find its home? Because it feels like I want to ask a personal question to a personal God. Where does that find its home? It finds its home with the Christian God who became as personal as it is possible to be by entering human history as the person of Jesus Christ. Right at the centre of the Christian faith is a God who not only hears and listens to our cries that this is not the way things are supposed to be, but he also voluntarily stepped into human history to face it himself, to look people in the eye and do something about their suffering. He didn't just say this is just the way the world is. He did something about it. A man who brought hope out of despair so many times when it it feels like, how can you possibly do something about that? Sometimes it involved reaching into the grave itself and bringing people out again beyond their wildest expectations. Jesus cared about suffering and took time all night, if necessary, to pray for people, to spend time with them, to weep with them and to to rescue them and restore them. And Jesus didn't just uh, visually see suffering and interact with it. He himself also suffered. He suffered like us. You see, right at the heart of Christianity, and this is really what it comes down to, isn't it? If there's nothing else that you take away from this evening, take this away. God himself has suffered. Right at the center of Christianity is not a symbol of victory or triumph, but a symbol of execution and death and suffering of a man who was arrested and tried unfairly, wrongly accused and sentenced to death, betrayed by one friend, disowned by another, and deserted by the rest, who was flogged within an inch of his life, and beaten up, nailed to a cross, and left to die of asphyxiation. The person of Jesus Christ is not just familiar with our suffering in an academic sense. He really knows. And wherever you are with God tonight, if you turn to God for help in your suffering, he is not aloof or distant. He is not indifferent. He comes close to the brokenhearted. He understands because he has been there himself. And the thing that's incredible is Jesus didn't just suffer like us. He suffered for us because there's a sense in which his suffering goes far beyond anything that we could experience, hard as that might be to imagine. You see, the separation, when Jesus was was hanging there on the cross, the greatest form of suffering was that utter cosmic level of isolation. 
You see, Jesus experienced what it felt like to suffer without the comfort and strength of God the Father. He had the weight of every wrong choice, every sin, every act of rebellion that we have ever committed, that all humans and all human history have ever committed, bearing down on him. And God the Father judged Jesus for our wrong. And because of that, there was separation. Christ's suffering has gone far beyond us in ways we cannot imagine. Jesus was separated from the Father during his hour of worse suffering so that when we suffer, we never have to be separated from the love and strength and comfort and forgiveness of God. You might be thinking, I still don't understand the difference that a man on a cross makes. This man 2,000 years ago, how does what happened then make a difference today? And this is a good question. And it got me thinking about um, situations um, where conflict resolution is needed and things have got so bad that you need a mediator. And for effective mediation, you need someone who understands the problem but is not part of it. Jesus Christ uniquely meets both of these criteria in terms of the problem of suffering. To solve the problem of evil, we need someone who can identify with evil and suffering, but themselves do not contain any. Jesus Christ is the only person in all of human history who did not contribute to the problem of evil. He came to defeat it. The only person ever to say, Father, I'm doing it your way. Jesus, who said no evil, thought no evil, did no evil ever, allowed himself to be utterly consumed by evil. So that if we trust in him, we never have to be consumed by evil, either in this life or the next. I don't know what is happening in your life, but evil does not have to have the last word. There is one who has said, I will die so that you can live. I will take your pain and suffering to the grave with me. You matter to me that much and I will leave it there. And I will rise through death and out the other side so that if you follow me, you can have new life with me. I will take your mistakes and your regrets onto myself so that you can know forgiveness and comfort, restoration and peace with the God that made you. There was a period in, uh, uh, when Conrad was ill for three months, uh, about three years ago, and we couldn't get ourselves out of it. And um, we ended up, he ended up becoming well again by uh, being prayed for by somebody. And this was completely beyond 
you know, we were just delighted with this. It hadn't happened before, and so then normal life resumed. And then suddenly, three weeks later, he, he just suddenly became ill again. And I described that as, as the worst point in, in our whole kind of story together because the sensation that I had was that I'd been robbed. That we'd been robbed as a family of, of, of joy and just normal life together. And I ended up calling one of my friends and... Um, talking to her about it and she said Sharon you can't fight it sometimes you have to go down underneath it and let God bring you back up again and as I thought about her words I realized that this helps us understand Easter because here we have Jesus taking evil and suffering to the grave with him and getting down underneath it if you want to get something out properly you've got to get the the roots out you've got to get underneath it this is what happened at Easter that first Easter Jesus Christ went down underneath evil and he pulled it out by the roots all the broken relationships all the disease all the sickness all the mess that we stare at in the face that has had the wind taken out of its sails for those that will trust in God. And the same Jesus went through death and out the other side because death could not hold him down because Jesus is God and God is indestructible life. And because of this, if Jesus has gone to the lowest possible level that it is possible to go, then there is no pit too deep, no trauma too overwhelming from which God can't pull us out and put us back on our feet again. And I don't say that to trivialize whatever it is that you're struggling with. I'm saying it as a a reminder and encouragement to you tonight of the power of the resurrection. We're talking about a God who raises the dead. And the amazing thing is that he did this without destroying our freedom. Isn't that incredible? That we are still free to say, okay, Lord, I choose you. I I don't understand what's happening. I'm going to walk with you in this, through this. Or we can say, no, thank you. I'll go it alone. But we are free to choose God and ask him for help. We're free to walk away. I wonder how will you use your freedom today, wherever you are with God, whether you feel close to Him, whether you feel far from Him, or whether you're actually an observer to this being called God. If God is real, why doesn't he get rid of it then, once and for all? One day he will. Evil has been defeated on the cross. It's had the wind taken out of its sails and one day it will be removed, once and for all. 
the penultimate chapter of my book is called How Do You Fix a Broken Story? Some of our stories are so broken. Our suffering is getting worse. It's not getting better. I have a friend who has MS. I'm watching her get worse. Atheism says there are lots of small stories. You can't fix them. Live as best you can. This is the only life you get. Eastern religions say there are repeating stories and if you're suffering today, it's because of something that happened in a previous life and there's karma to be worked off. Christian faith says you fix a broken story by embedding it in a much bigger story in which good wins and evil and the suffering that it causes will lose. And there will be justice Where there has not been justice here, there will be justice on that day. One day every tear will be wiped from our eyes. Imagine that. God's going to spend time wiping the tears away. And the reason that this hasn't happened yet is to give us time to get our choices right, to get our lives right with God. The incredible thing about Stephen Fry's reaction is that on that day when he is face to face with God, it is not that we will have the chance to rant and rave at him. God will ask questions of us. We will all have to answer to God for how we have lived, for why we have made the choices that we've made. And if it's true that the problem of evil begins and ends in the human heart and that if we don't deal with that, then we will simply be part of the evil that God removes on that day. I don't know how your life has gone. But God does. And he loves you. And your suffering matters to him. You matter to God. And he asks you today, again, today, how are you going to use your freedom? You can go through this with me or without me. And if, if you're actually here and you've, you've, never actually, uh, you've never actually chosen to walk through what you're going through with God, there is always, it's never, you will never be disappointed. Even a simple prayer like, I choose you, God, or something like, sorry, and thank, sorry, Lord, for doing it on my own. Thank you for dying for me. Please come into my life. Even just something that, that simple. And it's been my experience since I became a Christian at 21. Uh, though I don't understand it all, far from it. But somehow through Jesus, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, it is possible to know forgiveness for the past. A clean slate, a new start. And comfort in the present One thing I was really praying tonight is that some of you really need to know God's comfort today and hope for the future.
Why don't we pray? Father, I just want to thank you for um, that you were willing not just to stay distant, but to come and be one of us and to uh, look uh, our suffering in the face and to do something about it. And Lord, I thank you that you were willing to give everything, Lord, to give your, your life um, so that we can know you and so that we can... Uh, so that evil doesn't have to have the last word in our lives. I thank you for that. I want to pray, Lord, for um, those tonight who really need to, to know your comfort, Lord, and your strength and your healing. And I just pray, Lord, that you would come close to them. I pray that you would speak to them. I pray you bring people around them, Lord, to, to be family, to be church. And um, I also pray for any that actually feel far from you in their suffering, um, that you would draw near again. And I pray for those that don't know you, Lord, and uh, are trying to do it alone. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, enable, uh, help them, Lord, to, to, choose, to choose you. And I just uh, thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Thank you, Sharon. That was uh, so wonderful and thought-provoking and encouraging. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to take a short break, and then we're all going to have the opportunity to write down any questions on these pieces of paper that have been circulated. And then we're going to gather those up and um, let Sharon basically just choose which questions to answer in the time we've got available. So why don't we break? I know there's a lot of food for thought there, and it might be good just to stand up, uh, grab a drink, and maybe do this for five minutes, and then we'll, as I say, have the opportunity to write down some questions for Sharon.